When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So this should be fun. Rolling Stone recently published a list of the 50 worst decisions in music history. It's a really entertaining and very idiosyncratic list by our own Andy Green, and Andy's going to join me to go over the whole list. I should note that we recorded before Kanye West basically declared himself a Nazi this week, which honestly probably merits a redo of the list with Kanye West declares himself a Nazi at number one. And I think Andy is actually contemplating that, so stay tuned. But here's my conversation with Andy Green about his take on the worst decisions in music history. So Andy, obviously, you could have done the 500 worst decisions in music history because musicians make bad decisions. It's just what they do. You wanted to do professional decisions that impacted careers, and you also wanted to keep it light. You didn't put on yeah. Astral World. You didn't put on... I was thinking that there's so many dark moments in music history that have been gone over, and there's so many awful crimes people have done or destruction of their own bodies. I didn't want to talk about Gary Glitter I didn't want to talk about Astral World. I didn't want to talk about 14-year-old girlfriends. I didn't just want to keep saying that when he tried heroin, it was a big mistake because he died. You know, I don't... That just didn't seem like a good idea. You could have done a list so that I, was just shot up heroin for the first time, and that would have been like 100,000 yeah. people. Yeah. And so I figured, you know, like, debts, I didn't want to do, like, Roskilde or the Who concert. You know, there were mistakes made there for sure. But I figured it should be sort of musical, like, choices or career moves that were just really stupid in hindsight that had consequences, but keeping it relatively light. And in the, in the intro, I note that. I didn't want to just get into the dark stuff. Keep it light. Yeah. Um, yeah, for which sure. you did. It's very entertaining. So, uh, and then we figured we had to do it in the show, especially if Howard Stern can do a whole hour about this list, uh, which he just did. And apparently, so you said that he was under the impression the entire time that in fact, it was the music's yeah. most embarrassing moments. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I was making breakfast this morning. I started getting all these texts about Howard Stern doing my thing. And I turned it on and the label on the Sirius app is most embarrassing moments. I'm like, no, I'm like, no, it's the biggest mistakes and then i turned it on i rewind a bit and he goes installing a list of most embarrassing moments i was like no it's biggest mistakes and howard goes i don't quite get this list because so many of these are not embarrassing <laughs> then he goes okay well with jan jackson i don't see that that was embarrassing i was just screaming mistakes <laughs> so we at least will get the name of your list which is in giant letters at the top we will get that correct <laughs> yes. here so we are being more professional in our broadcasting here than howard stern the yes. 50 worst decisions in music history. The word embarrassing doesn't appear anywhere there. Nowhere, uh, yes. That's some bad police work there by the Howard Stern staff. So we're going to do it. Number 50. And this is a recurring theme in the list, is yeah. someone trying to jump on a trend in an ill-advised right. way. And number 50 is Elton John goes <laughs> disco. Why was this and bad? I mean, Elton John doing disco theoretically could have been great. Timing was bad. If he did in 77 or 78... 
and had a song that was like, do you think I'm sexy or miss you or I was made for loving you, it could have been great. But he did this in like late 79 when the Disco Sucks backlash was brewing and he just did shitty disco. He didn't do a good disco. He did a Johnny B. Good disco cover. It was just freaking crazy. And it's especially noteworthy because Elton John's 70s were so awesome. Just one great album that was after the next. It was his best time, obviously. And he ends the decade on this just shitty disco record. So, yeah, he made an entire disco album, Victim of Love. So there's nothing good on that entire album. I've never heard it in my life. I'm full disclosure. Yeah. No. It's a horrible <laughs> record. <laughs> it is weird, though, because you, you list, I love every single classic rock disco song. It tended to focus their energies into a really poppy and catchy area. Missed you. Emotional Rescue. I Was Made For yeah. Loving You by Kiss. I even love Do You Think I'm Sexy. And yet, an Elton, of all people, should have been able to kill it, but didn't work out. I think he gave the producer a lot of power just over the record. It really was only like half his record. And it's just, I think by this point, like the drugs had really entered the picture in a big way, and he was just coasting. And number 49, the Sex Pistols fire talented bassist Glenn Matlock, replace him with human rubbish heap Sid Vicious. And we had Steve Jones on the podcast earlier this year, and... They should not have done that. That was, it was, that was a bad idea. It was so fantastically stupid. He basically was the main writer on a lot of their hits. As much as Steve Jones says it's not totally true, he clearly was a key part of their songwriting process, Glenn. And he was like a sane adult. And they fired him just because him and John Lydon, they didn't get along. If you're going to fire him, you have to bring in somebody good. <laughs> you know, they were a big band at this point. They brought in somebody who looked, he had the perfect look for a punk band, but he couldn't play the bass. He was a complete idiot. And he was just the most self-destructive person to ever live. He was so good looking though. Yeah, he was good looking and he had the hair and the chain. He would cut himself on stage and that was cool, but he literally didn't know how to play the bass. <laughs> it's weird, if I remember correctly, even as recently as a few months ago when I talked to Steve Jones, he still isn't willing to give Glenn Matlock that much credit, which is awkward. I think that Glenn has pissed him off as the years have gone by by claiming, quote, I wrote all the hits. And that's not true either, actually. Yeah. yeah, it's not true. But it is true. After he left, they just wrote two more songs or something <laughs> ever. The, the record does speak for itself. It's not like there's there's uh, 10 great Sex Pistols albums after Nevermind the Bullock. So yeah, or bad idea. Even singles. I think they wrote Bodies afterwards, which is great, obviously. But almost the entire album was before him. It was before Sid Vicious came. So yes, mistake. Definitely a mistake. So number 48, and this is, look... This is a, a mistake made by the Recording Academy yeah. uh, with the Grammys. Number 48 is A Taste of Honey wins Best New Artist Grammy over the Cars and Elvis Costello. 
Yes. Yeah. And for those who were not conscious in 1979, who the fuck is Taste of Honey? They were a disco duo whose only hit was Boogie Oogie Oogie. Get on. Right, right. Which is a fine song. Good song. But the late 70s is my favorite period of music ever. I think the A. Jimmy Carter presidency is just an unstoppable, like, four years of awesome music. But And the Grammys, they didn't get any of it. They gave Best New Artist to freaking Debbie Boone and the Starland Vocal Band and A Taste of Honey and not the Ramones or the Clash or any of these groups. It was just Debbie Boone and A Taste of Honey. I'm impressed that Elvis Costello was even nominated. How about that? The thing, I say this over and over again, but there's this misconception that the Grammys got it right with rock and only with sort of modern pop and hip hop did they start getting it wrong. No, if anything, they were getting, they were worse until the late 90s or 2000s. They got everything wrong consistently. Terrible. They gave album of the year to Blood, Sweat, and Tears as opposed to Abbey Road. And you can look at how few Grammys that they gave Bob Dylan and Neil Young ever. Again, that could and probably should be a list of its own. But number 47, I feel like you bend your own rules here for the sake of humor. Adam Levine slides into the DMs. Not really about his career. That that wasn't my idea to include that. I couldn't resist when it was brought up because it's so funny. I couldn't resist. It's just always a mistake if you have a lot to lose to start just DMing randos who could destroy you with screenshots. It just seems so ill-advised to leave evidence of your philandering. The problem for him is the is the phrasing, maybe. It's just so bad. I may need to see the booty is bad. <laughs> it's... Yeah, if you're going to be creepy, I'll at least be clever about it. Don't be ridiculous. Yeah, I understand why you included it. We'll let it slide. Yeah, thank you. Number 46. Bob Dylan releases Self-Portrait. Yeah, I was torn about this because the Self-Portrait sessions are great. And I love parts of that record. If you hear the Bootleg Series version of Self-Portrait, it's great. But if you think about it from the perspective of Dylan in 1970, when he just had this whole 60s run, his last record with Nashville Skyline, To go do a record where he writes almost none of the songs, they're really lame covers, they're produced horribly, there's so many backup singers and horns and shit on it, it's a double album, and the fact that he said later that he made a bad on purpose, which I don't totally believe, but it's interesting to consider, it was just such a colossal misfire after one of the best runs in the history of music. He's had a lot of different kind of takes on it. I think he did make it bad on purpose. <laughs> yeah, because it's so astoundingly bad when he's covering the boxer and he's singing it in both his like crooning voice and his real singing voice. I am just a boy, my story seldom told. I have squandered my resistance or a pocket full of mumbles. Yes, he does the Simon like, and Garfunkel song, The Boxer, sings both parts or tries to, and does it in the voice of sort of the lay lady lay voice. And then his old voice. And it's hard to conclude from that this is anything other than some sort of joke. Yeah, which led to the most famous lead in the history of record reviews by Grill Marcus that was just, what is this shit? Right. 
What Dylan said in 1984 doesn't even make any sense. He told Kurt Loder, I said, fuck it. I wish these people would just forget about me. I want to do something they can't possibly like, they can't relate to. And then the whole idea backfired because the album went out there and the people said, this ain't what we want. And they got more resentful. I guess he theoretically, according to his explanation in that moment, he was hoping they would just make people forget about him altogether. I guess so. That feels like ex post facto rationalization. Right. But who knows? I can never get into his head. It's impossible. It was the debut of the side of Bob that we'd see several times after. The, the I don't give a fuck Bob. The Bob who would make some truly terrible albums over the years. It was that Bob saying, hi, yeah. it's me, hi. <laughs> it, it was subverting expectations, which he'd already done. He made John C. Harding at the peak of Psychedelia. He made Nashville Skyline when people saw him as a folk rocker. I mean, he'd been fucking with stuff, but those two albums were great. They were all original songs, and they were fantastic. This was a very different thing. Okay, so number 45. <laughs> I don't think most people know this happened. There's a lot to be explained here. Yes hires the Buggles. And yes, of course, being the the great prog rock band. And this is when the 70s turned into the 80s in 1980. And how does this relate to Owner of a Lonely Heart? It's complicated. I will tell it very quickly to not bore everybody <laughs> with the complex history of Yes and the Buggles. That prog rock was deeply uncool by the end of the 70s, and Yes were melting down as they always were. Their lead singer, John Anderson, and their keyboardist, Rick Wakeman, quit the band. But their management, they also managed the Buggles, as far as duo, that in 1979, they had a big hit with Video Killed the Radio Star. And they were a singer and a keyboard player, so they had the good idea to just merge the two acts. They just let's bring the Buggles like, into Yes, and then go on tour and not really tell anybody. <laughs> so they did this tour <laughs> where fans show up. The quote in the article by Rick Wakeman is so funny when he heard about it later. When they are like, "Who the fuck is this fat dumpy guy singing? Where the fuck is John?" <laughs> the fans were livid about it, but and then so the tour is a disaster. They break up, but. Trevor Horn was the lead singer of the Buggles End of Yes, and three years later, he produces Owner of a Lonely Heart, but with John Beck in the band. So it both destroyed Yes, and it led to their resurrection in the 80s. Yeah, the Owner of a Lonely Heart thing is very confusing because that's an alternate world, Yes, that has very little to do with the original lineup of Yes. Yeah, it's and a long story. And a great, a great, undeniably great song, just not very connected to Yes, Qua Yes. And no. I'm trying to think what the equivalent now would be of Yes hiring the Buggles. It's like if the 1975 had Ed Sheeran take over or something like that. I, <laughs> yeah. think, I think it's like you go to see the 1975 and Ed Sheeran is mysteriously fronting the band. Yeah. Although the, it doesn't really yeah. work because Ed Sheeran is more famous than the it's 1975. Are famous. Yeah. Or no, in, I got it. Sean Mendes shows up and he's the new singer of the 1975. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is going on here? I think that's more the equivalent. You're like, what? Yeah. And just everyone acts like that's just, that's just how it's supposed to be. And that's the other thing yeah. is... Pre-internet, people could attempt things like this. They would never try to pull something like this now because the whole world would know about it within the first show. And I think their goal was to not tell anybody. Number 44, it's hard to say whose mistake this is precisely. It's a lot of people's mistakes, I guess. It's Justin's mistake. It's the world's mistake for blaming Janet. 
But number 44 is Justin Timberlake rips off Janet Jackson's top at the Super Bowl, and she's the one who faces a backlash. I would say ultimately it's two things. It's Justin for not taking the blame, not standing up for Janet, which is really a gross thing and looks worse as every year goes by. And then it's the public and the industry's fault for blaming Janet. Yeah, for sure. Like, all she did was have her top ripped off by somebody else. And if you look at her career before that and after that, it's two different careers. She was one of the biggest stars in the industry. It's hard to recreate what a moment that was. It was a big deal. And weirdly, it might even be a bigger deal now due to the renewed sort of right-wing censoriousness. It feels hard to say. But yeah, it was a big thing. And Justin just slid by and never defended yeah. her and somehow maintained it, for it was this weird thing because for about a decade he maintained this sort of good guy image after that and then everyone's like wait a second what the fuck's wrong with you it's crumbled but they invited him back to perform again at the super bowl four years ago he played halftime in 2018 right. and she's banned from all stadiums forever it's just so ridiculous yeah for him it's been like a slow motion damage from this it's interesting well, and with all the britney stuff too he's taking some shit for that if you look back at the video for crimey river you're like oh this is a little rough maybe he shouldn't have done this <laughs> And he apologized to them both at once. He put up some statement on Instagram. I'm sorry to Britney Spears and Janet Jackson, as if that's going to do anything. He doesn't even know what he's apologizing to Britney for. They, <laughs> yes. just, they just told him to apologize. He still doesn't know. Yeah. Number 43, Ticketmaster introduces dynamic pricing system. Basically, this is a system that forces fans to essentially bid against each other in real time for tickets. Yeah. And with no real prior knowledge of the prices. So you log on to Ticketmaster after waiting in a virtual queue. You see a ticket that's $300. You click on it. And then by the time that it's in your checkout bin or whatever, it's like $1,000. Because <laughs> they are calculating the demand in real time. And then a clock is ticking in the corner of your screen down by the second. And if you don't purchase that... It's going to go back and you could be shut out. You face enormous pressure as a clock ticks in front of you and you have mere minutes to decide. And it's just a heinous experience for fans. It's so awful. Yeah. My, my strong advice to any fan who clicks on a ticket and then finds it's $5,000 in their cart is to not buy that ticket. Don't buy that ticket. Yeah. You'll be able to get it. If you really are dying to get into the just into the building at some point, you'll be able to find a cheaper yeah. ticket. Than that. It's just not worth it. Wait. Don't let them do it to you. Yeah, but they want you to think it's then or never. That, that, that this is your chance. And they and you have so little information. You don't know if they put half the house on sale or the entire house. Nothing. Which is what they want. It's really, as you hinted, ticketing has never been fair or good. In the late 80s and 90s, you could definitely, people would wait out all night for tickets and then still mysteriously find that the first 50 rows were already sold the moment <laughs> that it started. Uh, always. It, it, it's always been a complete racket. But with every innovation, like verified fan and stuff, it just gets worse. Yeah, it's really tough. And I'm not sure there's a solution in sight other than, f- for me, this solution seems to be just preventing resales. But they don't want to do that. Yeah, use paperless ticketing, ban resales, where Ticketmaster, they do their own resales now. And 
I've seen laws propose that you can't collect a fee twice in the same ticket, which is what Ticketmaster does. So they have every incentive to allow the scalpers to buy everything because then they get double the money for each ticket. It's so fucked up. Okay. Number 42. The monkeys strive for a new level of artistic freedom with their experimental movie, Head. So the monkeys were huge in 1967. A lot of their biggest hits were written by other people. There were records where they didn't play on them, but they did write some songs themselves. It's a myth that it's a myth that even I've fallen for that they never wrote their own songs. Yes. What were some uh, of the What were some of the songs they wrote themselves? They wrote "Mary Mary." They wrote "Randy Scouts." But they wrote plenty of their own songs. But the biggest hits were largely written by Carol King and Neil Diamond and Boyce and Hart and other outside writers. But the TV show was what fueled so much of it. Like back then, the days of three networks, if you were on TV every week, you were a superstar. And the TV show was very innovative. And every week, it would be a new song. And the whole country would watch it. It would become a hit. And so it was this machine. But they got resentful. And they got enough clout to make a movie. And the movie is just this psychedelic like it's this incomprehensible movie with great music i love those songs but the movie just tanked so hard it was such a stupid move and it just ended the whole band basically they made a movie based on the batman tv show around this exact same time and it'd be like if they made the Batman movie made it like a Fellini movie, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, it, it was that the fans, that no adults that were, that were going to go see Head and be impressed by the artistry of it because they had no adult fans. And their young fans were thinking it would, be a, it would be the goofy TV show. So it pleased absolutely nobody. And there's all this anti-war stuff in it. And in the first moment, they all die. I mean, there's all the symbolic stuff. It's just insanity it's very even though there's not a specific dewey cox moment of that in walk hard it is very dewey cox and it was co-written by jack nicholson <laughs> which is always often forgotten so number 41 see i disagree with you on this one but okay. prince changes his name to an unpronounceable glyph i maintain that that was cool as hell and the glyph looked cool and then the guitar was cool okay do you think it helped his career much <laughs> no i don't think it helped his career but i think it was a a fucking cool move do do you think it would nullify all of his contracts because his name is Prince <laughs> in the contracts and now he had a new name? I'm not, <laughs> no. I'm not entirely sure that he really thought that was going to happen, but maybe. Point being, yes, it, it. I could see it being cool and tough, but as far as furthering his career path, it, it didn't do very much. The fact he reversed it shows that even he realized it wasn't working. The thing, it is true, as you mentioned, it's so hard to explain in modern terms, but because it was pre-internet, the way that they gave this sort of the font to be able to print the glyph in like newspapers and magazines, because that was still the primary medium in 1993, they sent a bunch of floppy disks to media outlets that included the glyph so they could print it. Number 40 is a good point. Number 40, Britney Spears turns down Umbrella. It's another thing where you can make a whole list of just people turning down songs that were offered to them that became huge hits. But this one's a, right. an absolutely horrendous decision. Yeah, because thinking 07 is when she was really flailing. She was going through a lot of problems in her personal life. But had she dropped Umbrella, which she could have sang great, you can imagine it, it would have really, it could have launched a whole new era of her career. 
but she allowed somebody else to become a superstar with that song. And Rihanna is, is still a huge star. It really was a big moment in pop history when that happened. Truthfully, I think it would have been a hit for either one of them. I think Rihanna yeah. did bring a lot of flavor to it that probably was ultimately better than what Britney could have brought to it. So I think it's sure. fortuitous. But it's just such a horrendous... It's exactly like when you hear people turning down hit roles and hit in what became the biggest movies of all time. But at the same time, yeah. who knows? Maybe it would have flopped for Britney. Who's to say? Yeah, I can't know. I thought about doing TLC when they turned down maybe one more time. There's a certain karmic justice it. in that. It's, the wheel just turns around. Yeah, I researched that and they said, look, we didn't want to sing those lyrics. We didn't <laughs> want to sing Hit Me Baby. That sounds so against our whole message as TLC of like, please hit me, that we didn't want to do it. And that made sense to me. So I didn't include it. Yeah, that's right. Somehow, with, somehow, when Britney sang it, you knew that it didn't mean that, uh, and it didn't mean anything at all. Me. Yeah, of course. As best as I can tell, they I think this has been resolved. That it was an, a, a Swedish issue that they thought it meant "hit me up, please call me." Right? Yeah. No, he didn't know that. But it, but the other lyrics where she's basically <laughs> saying. If I don't have this man in my life, I'm nothing. And even that, that is I, not yeah. TLC. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Number 39. Chris Cornell goes R&B. It's interesting. I, I, I think we've ended up, we've talked about this many times in the show. Brittany and Rob, for some reason, claim to love that album. I don't even, the, I think one of the problems with it is, although he teamed up with Timbaland, it's not really perceptible as R&B. It doesn't, yeah. it, it doesn't really, it doesn't, it just sounds like, like nothing really <laughs> it just sounds awkward yeah uh, it's a guy who is a very famous singer one of the best vocalists in rock history who outside of his bands didn't quite know what to do with himself and the move back then, that Jimmy Ivy even pushed onto everybody was Timbaland will fix everything. Just work with Timbaland and you'll be great. You'll have a big hit. And it was it's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I've, I have a lot of thoughts on this. One, one <laughs> thing is that all respect to Jimmy Ivy, but there, def, there was 100% is pretty documented that by the 2000s, this was 2008, he was going around telling every, he was then the head of Interscope Records. He was telling everyone that rock is dead and that if they wanted to survive or even have their records released by him, they had to do something that was not actually rock. And so yeah. it, to me, it's pretty funny. That's the guy who gets it, that he's inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when uh, truthfully on a commercial, he had a lot to do with, with killing off Kill rock on, on a commercial level because he just lost faith in it. And, yeah. and I think that what this shows is this was... It would have been better. Almost anything would have been better than this on, on a commercial level. And then the other thing I'll say, and I was, I did a Timbaland profile, not that around this time, and I was in the studio with him, and he had when he did a record with Duran Duran, that didn't work either. And I watched as as you know, Timbaland made this great loop, that would have been great for some other genre. And then the guys in Duran Duran sitting there, Simon LeBond sitting there listening to this loop over and over again. 
as if they were supposed to be rappers, because that's what Jay-Z would do. Right. So Timbaland would just play this loop as if that was going to spark something, and they were just going crazy. That's not how they write songs. <laughs> and it, it was so awkward. Simon Le Bon was basically begging me to leave, and I was like, sorry, I'm here to do the story. And Timbaland, he was screamingly awkward out of his skin, like not even able to yeah. understand how you're supposed to write to this loop, because that's not... It's just not how it works if you're Duran Duran or Chris Cornell. Yeah, it was. It just showed how the whole thing. And at the same time, put him with Nelly Furtado, put him with Justin Timberlake. It works great. Number 38 is very funny. Uh, Roger Waters dares Pink Floyd to do it without him. And it's just, listen, Roger has never been accused of having, you know, a lack of self-confidence. Roger really believed, especially as, as, you know, he took more and more control over the band the wall, the final cut. He started to believe he was Pink Floyd. So he right. quits in 85. He thought that they couldn't possibly go on without him. Yeah, and they had real genuine hits off that next record. And they continued to play these stadiums. And he didn't think it through that David Gilmore was much more famous than Roger Waters back then by a big margin. And he was the voice of most of the big hits. He was a guitar player. And no one really knew any of their names. If they knew one name, it was David Gilmore. But the Flying Pig was more famous than their faces. <laughs> and so they tried to tour the exact same time in the fall of 87. And Roger was playing just to oceans of empty seats and losing his fucking mind while Pink Floyd were in stadiums. It's, and, he had such a great quote to Rolling Stone at the time. That's my pig up there. Which I could just yeah. picture him saying. It just was, it was a miscalculation. It was a misunderstanding of the power of a brand name, of a band name. And people, and, right, and yeah, it, people want to see Pink Floyd. And it's another mistake that people have, that he's not the only one to make. Sure, sure. Yeah, you need the name. That oftentimes there are people who are the biggest part of their band and they can't do concerts because the name sells more tickets. It's his pig up there. Yeah. Number 37. The Stone Roses take five years to finish Second Coming. Yeah, I just love this one because by the time they made it, they thought they were Jesus, basically. So they, they called it Second Coming, <laughs> like they were Christ. And the first record is so great. Total classic. I, mean, I love that record. But five years is a really long time. And those five years were a really long time from 89 to 94. <laughs> So much changed, and all of Britpop happened in that time, really, inspired by the Stone Roses. And the Stone Roses, they made an equally big mistake by not touring America at all. They didn't come here, whereas Oasis, they came here as a new band, basically, and were willing to play bars and clubs and month after month, play every city in the States, just like over and over again. And that was really smart. The Stone Roses were so lazy, they didn't want to scale down and do that. Yeah, that's another common mistake. That's the difference between the British bands who became big here and the ones who didn't. The ones who weren't willing to slug it out and humiliate themselves by playing small venues in shitty American towns, those are the ones who who didn't last in America. And then often that shortens their overall careers. Yeah, and then... The Stone Roses, they did the classic thing of since the album was so popular and they were rich all of a sudden, then their life is just drugs and partying and models. They fight with each other and they don't realize that, gee, we maybe need to make a new record at some point. They just, they made every mistake a band can make. Yeah, as it is, it's sort of like 
that second album might as well have not come out because no one ever talks about it. The first one is the one. So number 36. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. David Geffen obviously has done a lot of things right in his life or he wouldn't be David Geffen. Very rich man, very successful man in the music and movie industries. But in 1983, he did a very foolish thing. That said, a thing that you can almost understand why he did it. So he had signed... David Geffen had his record label. He was breaking out on his own. He had his own record label. And he, he kept signing people who were little not in their... He kept signing people who were not quite in their prime moment. And then he felt he was taking it personally. He signed these friends like Neil Young, and then they would give him shit records. And no one took that farther than Neil. And it's just what he didn't realize was the 70s was over. It was hard to know that in the the early 80s. So he puts a fortune into this new label, and he signs Elton John and all these people. And the records selling in the industry are like Flock of Seagulls and stuff. And he's just freaking the fuck out because he's hemorrhaging money. And Neil was his big act. And we had Russ Never Sleeps a few years earlier, but he didn't realize that things were different and Neil was different. And then when he made an album, Trans, which I love, Trans, where you couldn't even hear like the words on a bunch of the songs because they're being distorted by a vocoder. He essentially, yeah, he essentially made his version of a Kraftwerk album, which was the last thing on earth that anyone at the time wanted from Neil Young. Yeah, and Geffen was so frustrated, so freaked out about his business. He didn't know what to do, so he thought that he could sue his way out of it. And so he told Neil to make a, quote, rock and roll record. So out of pure spite, he made a rockabilly record <laughs> just to fuck with him, basically. Yeah, like a 50s sounding, truly terrible. Joey record, and then he made a country record. He was doing all these genre experiments. It would, it would I, be like if you signed, if Taylor Swift right now signed the biggest record deal in the history of the record business, and then started making albums where you couldn't even tell it was Taylor Swift. Like maybe an instrumental ambient record, or like a like a yeah. metal record with her voice distorted. Or, and, that's, and imagine you're the person who gave tens of million dollars to this person. You, you start yeah. freaking out. He freaked out, and Neil was so frustrated that he called the next album Life, <laughs> and the cover is a guy in prison who's scratching lines on a wall. It's the number of records that he'd made for Geffen at that point, because he felt so boxed in by the contract and the second that he was done with Geffen and the lawsuit was over and he was at Warner Brothers he writes Rocky in the Free World the exact song that Geffen was praying for he waited (laughs) until the deal was done to make freedom it's so funny which he called the album Freedom and then he writes, but it's, 
yeah, it's one of the, the best songs of his life. I mean, I, again, I can't totally blame David Geffen because you can imagine the panic of you're sinking your own money into this and it just it feels personal. It feels personal. Yeah. You sign your friend and they're taking your money and making the worst, weirdest albums of, the, of their career. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's rough. Number 35, also very funny. Just poor timing. Number 35, Jane's Addiction, Breakup at Dawn of Alt-Rock Revolution They Helped Inspire. And so it is true. I don't know that Jane's Addiction is hugely on the radar of younger people, but Jane's Addiction was such an important band. When you talk to Stone Gossard of Pearl Jam, you know, about what shaped the sound of the first Pearl Jam record, he'll say Jane's Addiction over and over again. They were yeah. extremely. They, they were that bridge. They sounded mainstream. They could. They they sounded like the mainstream metal of the time. But they also were alternative in this indefinable way. They were the bridge uh, on so many levels. Yeah. But yeah, 1991, the exact moment when things are popping, they quit. Yeah, and when I interviewed Perry a few months ago, he even said to me, and I quote him in the article, he goes, that was so stupid, I don't know what I was thinking. Because they were one record away from MTV embracing them in a big way, and really, they could have been a big arena headliner band instead. And because they made the first Lollapalooza, they launched all these other groups that became huge and made the big money they never made. Yeah, it's very confusing. The fact that they always hated each other, I think, would probably pay good drugs. And the fact they hated each other would probably be explained yeah, as there decision. Was, there was that, of course, of course. But uh, but yeah, I mean, 1991. You're talking about Nirvana and Pearl Jam, <laughs> Chili Peppers blowing up, who've obviously well, been around for quite a few years. Huge time for Soundgarden. And then, then they just quit and disappear. Bad well, idea. I, th- I think Perry thought that he could take Stephen Perkins, their drummer, and start Porno for Pyros and be just as big. But... It didn't happen. Number 34. Robin Thicke tries to win back his ex-wife with Terrible Album. Now, yeah, that's a mistake. Wasn't blur, Wasn't just the existence of Blurred Lines. With, I it's acknowledge a all of yeah. that. Okay, now he was close. Tried to domesticate you. But you're an animal. Baby, it's in your nature. Just let me... <laughs> but that was a huge hit that made him a ton of money. Even in hindsight, like, every aspect of that song in the video is problematic. Like, every part of it. <laughs> That he didn't even write it really. He admitted later that it was like all for hell and he didn't really write much of it. The fact that the song is about there's blur lines between consent, which is a, a horrific message. Then the lawsuit inspired, was it, it sets a terrible precedent for songwriters in the future. But it was a hit at least, so I didn't want to do that. But the fact that his follow-up was Paula, <laughs> a whole record about his ex-wife who he just cheated on. And it's a whole concept record where every song is horrible and humiliating and it failed. She didn't take him back. And he was a joke after that. It was just such a misfire. You know what? I would say it's, I think there is a big mistake in there. Mm. The biggest mistake was Pharrell and Robin Thicke not simply settling the lawsuit by Marvin Gaye's estate where they said that Blurred Lines bit the feel of Got to Give It Up. By fighting that lawsuit... And making it come to a decision in court, they set, as you hinted at, this horrendous precedent where now songwriters and artists have to worry about being sued for songs that just feel like other songs. Disaster. Yeah, which 
it's a disaster. It just the whole song. I've never seen a hit song that launched an artist the way that did just come back to bite him in the ass over and over again. It's it cost him his marriage. It cost him <laughs> so much. It's just it's a truly. We actually we mentioned that earlier this year in a podcast on the worst songs of all time. It actually was named the worst song of all time, and I think. The fact that, yes, that it had so many negative repercussions and, that it also makes it the worst timing, song of all time. Yeah. Its timing was just before Me Too. <laughs> so it's just so ridiculous. Yeah. So number 33, Kiss tried to make a serious concept album. and I was torn here about Kiss because there's so many mistakes. <laughs> Kiss taking off the makeup. Yeah, is also. But yeah. that album was big. Right. That, that had looked right. up on it, got them attention. You're absolutely right. And I was thinking about their solo records all in one day. But then, so I was thinking, God, I was thinking of what really was a disaster. And I was thinking about their concept record. I just had to go for it. I think you're right. And I think even the band, I've talked to them about this when I did my Kiss cover story. They agree that it was a disaster. It was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I love that it's music from The Elder. It was a movie. I love planned movie spinoffs of albums that never happened because they're too disastrous. There's a bunch of those. But I quote Gene Simmons in the blurb here just saying that it was a huge mistake. It's like a world without sun. You can't look up to anyone without heroes. It's interesting. One of the things that went wrong here is... There's two things you can do wrong as an artist is completely ignore all criticism. When the world is telling you like what you're doing is fucking terrible and you've gone in a bad direction, at some point you might want to heed that. So that's bad. Yeah. But listening to criticism too much is also a mistake. And I think this is a case where the critics got under their skin for being really dumb. They're not dumb as people, Gene and Paul, but their music was deliberately dumb, big, dumb rock. And... It got under their skin, and they're like, hey, we can do... Listen, we're working with Bob Ezrin, who or, who just made the wall. We'll work with Bob Ezrin, this producer, and we'll make... We're smart. We can do our own wall. Yeah, it was yeah. A, the Fredo moment. We're smart, not dumb, like they say. And they they, yeah. they attempt this overblown, hilarious, bad yeah. album. They didn't stop to realize that we aren't Pink Floyd. That's a big distinction there. Big mistake. Number 32 is very funny. Number 32 is the New York Dolls Embrace Communism. That I love the New York Dolls, and the first two records are just fantastic, but they sold nothing. Very, put into context for me, a very important sort of proto-punk band. And with Johnny Thunders, they were just great songwriters. But it was way too early, and they hired Malcolm McLaren pre-Sex Pistols. And his idea was to put them in tight red leather and put a giant communist flag behind them and make their whole thing that they were communists. And this is like the peak of the Cold War in the 70s. It was supposed to shock people, but everybody was like, what the fuck is this? It just imploded them. It is very interesting. Malcolm McLaren later, of course, very shortly afterwards became this Bengali behind the Sex Pistols. And everything he did with the Sex Pistols pretty much worked. Yeah, the same. It was much easier to provoke people in England in a way. You just spit on the Queen, and people go nuts yeah. in a way that is beneficial to your career. Yeah, in the states, it just didn't work. But it <laughs> taught him about the music industry. It got him some gear that he later gave the Sex Pistols. The entire disaster. It, it helped launch punk, really, as a in the UK at least. It was a big moment. It just sort of ruined the dolls. 
number 31, Leonard Cohen makes a record with legendary producer, gun-toting psychopath, Phil Spector. Uh, yeah, I was torn about this one because I, I like that record, even though I know it's a disaster. But Leonard's take on it was so funny that he didn't understand at the time when he hired Phil that he'd gone completely insane. Because <laughs> All Things Must Pass was just a few years earlier. He's did Imagine six years earlier. He didn't really realize that a lot had changed in those few years. And he never really had a strong producer before. So it got so crazy at the end, beyond even all the guns being pulled on him in the studio, which is insane enough, that Spectre, at a certain point, he just took the tapes back and used the scratch vocals as the master vocals on the record. I was born in a beauty My father was a dresser. Even the title is really bad, Death of a Ladies' Man. It's just, it seems yeah. cursed. Yeah, no, it was a mistake. Number 30, we've been talking about this for years. Great moment. Number 30 is Spin Doctors release <laughs> Cleopatra's Cat. And now, as you try to get across, so Spin Doctors were from this sort of New York jam scene, tight, funky band, but with really catchy songs. They were, it's one of those flukes because it's actually, the world was so different circa 1992 that's hard to explain but they were in a way they hit the same they hit the same note they hit the same sort of retro rock vein as the black crows at the time you could at the time actually have hits that sort of sounded like the rolling stones or something and they had these super catchy basically they had songs two princes little miss can't be wrong Jimmy Olsen's Blues, they all could fit right in on classic rock radio. They sounded like Steve Miller or the Stones. And there was a real, there were young people who loved classic rock at that time. And it, they were huge for that stuff. And this is all from their first album, Pocket Full of Kryptonite. The lead singer, Chris Barron, is this really cool, chill, hippie dude who it was just a weird time. You could be this kind of like, just chill hippie dude and be on MTV all the time. It was all working out, and maybe they could have made it last a little longer. But, but believe it or not, in 1994, this, the next Spin Doctors album was very anticipated. They had made all these catchy songs. Like, who knew what they were capable of? Who knew what would be next? <laughs> and they had a big, they had almost, if some of this might be apocryphal, it might be false memory at this point, but it was a big deal when they were going to debut the new single and the new video I, on MTV. It, I remember yeah. it. I remember watching MTV that night. I'm not making this up. It was like, big news, everybody. We're going to roll out the new Spin Doctor single, our new video. And I was like, fuck yeah. I was a big fan. <laughs> and then I swear to God, I remember vividly the song starting. I'm just like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> Scooby de bop. My girlfriend's cat is smarter than me. My girlfriend's cat is smarter than me. And it's just, it's. It's not like it's the worst song ever made. It has a certain charm to it. But if you're talking about a big band following up a big album, you don't know. You don't do that. And the worst part is there actually were better songs on the album. There were songs that sounded like the first album. You ought to know that. But I'm proud to say I asked Chris Barron about this on Twitter last year, or sometime in the last 12 months, and he said that the management had a plan. They thought it would be like a slow burn. Better to start with one of the weirdest songs, so then you can roll out the monster hits. 
the problem was like this song just it's hard to it's hard to point to a song that that killed off the commercial momentum of a career so thoroughly it just slaughtered yeah. it that was it that was the end that was it i wanted just to quickly tell my story about chris Barron, which is historical to me <laughs> I saw Bob Dylan in the Beacon Theater about two years ago, and behind me there's this old couple, and they start talking to the, the guy next to them, and I, I hear the whole thing, I'm right in front of him. And he goes, yeah, I, I'm in a band, I, I've actually played here at the Beacon. And they go, really, do we know any of your songs? And he goes, yeah, we just one hit, and they were like, sing it. And then I hear, if you want to call me a baby, and I, I turn around, and right in front of my head, I see Chris Barron is singing two princes to to these two people that had a baffled look on their face, and it was a fantastic moment. Well, there you go. And number 29. Number 29, Guns N' Roses begin work on Chinese democracy. Yeah. I didn't see... This is another one where it's hard to locate where the mistake was exactly. I think if it had been... It's more like Guns N' Roses don't stop working on Chinese democracy is the real problem. Yeah. It's extraordinary to place it the beginning of the record in 1994 because it didn't come out till 2008. It was 14 years on a single record. They spent millions and millions of dollars. Their bad members like, came and went. The songs leaked. They played a lot of the songs live. So by the time that it came out, it was the anti-climax of all time. This is absolutely one of my favorite stories in music history. I think it's rich with anecdote and hilarity. And it just goes on and on with a cast of millions. I think if you had to point to some of the funniest things about this, I'd say one of them is he would emulate genres that by the time, not even by the time it was released, but within while he was still working on the record, he would jump on fashions that would then go out of fashion before he was even close to being done with the record. So he was he was trying out new metal stuff, but new metal was long gone within yeah. a few years, and the record's still being worked on. So it is true. This is why, in, in theory, it could never end because if you're trying to make a very modern record, but what's modern keeps changing, it could just be an endless revision process. He really should still be working on it. He should have never put yeah, it out. It, and if you listen to some of the earlier demos that leaked out versus the finished ones, the amount of layers of guitars and shit he put on it just was so absurd. He tinkered to the point of just complete madness. I guess what I would say is about half of that album is actually pretty damn good. A song like Better is actually pretty great. And in some ways may have aged better than some of the... There's a lot of stuff on Use Your Illusion, which was the, their album the year before. It's two albums full of some good, a lot of good songs, and then a lot of just like generic-y sort of stonesy rock that hasn't aged well. It isn't that special. So at least Axel was trying to evolve. I respect what he was trying to do, but obviously some true madness intervened, intervened in the process. When you start an album in 1994 and release it in 2008, something has gone wrong, especially when it took you like a month to record Appetite for Destruction. Something has gone yeah. terribly wrong. And then they put it out and they didn't really promote it. They dropped it in Best Buy or whatever and didn't do one interview or anything. And it was just landed with a thud. That's Lars Ulrich's fault, Andy. <laughs> yeah, because he wouldn't be in the better video. Yeah, that's all other story. Yeah, he was... At the time, Axel had this incomprehensible thing. And it's really... It's remarkable because now Axel is 
the most reliable person in rock. He shows up every night and does a concert with Guns N' Roses, hangs out with Slash on stage. It's just everything is just smooth as anything. But at the time, he would say things like, I can't release a video for better because Lars Ulrich of Metallica won't approve some footage from the 90s that's supposed to be in it. And you'd be like, and you just try to understand what he was saying and nothing could make you understand what he's saying because it makes no sense. Or he'd, or they'd ask him, why are you, why are you four hours late to every concert? Because that was the thing that was happening at the time. And keep in mind, Slash was not in the band at the time. And he'd begin his answer with something about Slash. And Slash hadn't yeah. been in the band since the 90s. And it, yeah. it's just, he was, he, it was just utter madness. And I miss it. I miss that. I find that version of Guns N' Roses more interesting than the current zombie version that's just hauling themselves around the world. But yeah, bring back Bumblefoot. Bring back all those guys. (laughs) Number 28. Yeah, undeniably a mistake. It's weird. This is another one where there's cascading mistakes all around it because my take on this is a little more precise. So you say, number 28, Van Halen hired the guy from Extreme to be their new singer. Yes, and they did indeed do that in 1996. (laughs) However, it's even worse because, as you mentioned, they didn't just hire, they had already said they parted ways with Sammy Hagar, who had been the second singer in Van Halen. And then instead of just hiring a new singer or getting David Lee Roth back, they do this thing that is the most baffling thing in the history of the music business, perhaps. At the VMAs, which are still like a mildly big deal, but in 1996 were the highest profile stage in the world, bigger than the Grammys, bigger than anything for music. The whole music world is watching. They reunite, they don't perform, but they bring David Lee Roth, who hadn't been in the band since 1984, they bring David Lee Roth on stage with them at the VMAs. And the world went crazy. People were freaking out. It was a huge deal. And then it, they weren't actually reuniting with David Lee Roth. It was just a total weird tease. And then they say, no, it's not David Lee Roth. It's this guy from the band Extreme. And yeah. so it's just... The, it already was a bad decision, but to compound it like that is just an utterly deranged. I think what it had to do with their manager. Their t- the manager was trying to get them back with Roth, but they were fighting it. And then they got into such a... Uh, Eddie Van Halen and Roth got into such a dispute at the... Because Eddie Van Halen was talking about his hip transplant and how they can't tour until they do that. And David Lee Roth goes, tonight's not about your fucking hip, which was not it's a good... It's about me. It's about me, which is not a good idea. And, well, and that was and that. They, and they did those two new songs that were with Roth for the That's right. Of course, right. Sorry, yes. And that came off... Not only that, but they had recorded these songs with Roth for the Greatest Hits collection. So there were a lot of indications that David Lee Roth was, in fact, back. Me Wise Magic, a vastly <laughs> beloved Van Halen song. Bye. And then he wasn't. Instead, it was this guy. And it was a mess. It was just a mess. Yeah. And it was the start of a very long, dark period for the band where everything went wrong. Yeah, they make Van Halen 3, which is a deeply strange album. And it doesn't... The the songs are weirdly shapeless. It's not even just that it's the wrong singer. It's like there's something wrong with the songs. (laughs) Like they're not written. They're... The choruses, some songs will have two different choruses, it feels like. The riffs are shapeless. Everything is wrong with the album. It's just, it just doesn't, it's like they were trying to progress and didn't, 
or just they weren't listening to a producer, but everything, the songs were bad and shape. And they're even worse than bad because there's parts where you're like, oh, that's a good chorus, but then you don't hear it again. <laughs> like the stuff like that. It's just, it just feels like unproduced demos with the wrong singers. And, and the, as we've discussed, in Eddie's mind, these were the first songs he'd written sober, although that gets a little confusing whether they even were, but in his mind, they were. And the world just rejected it. And then it was a long time before he, then Van Halen made one more album that was a mix of old stuff and newer stuff, but it was not a collection of fully new songs. And it was with Roth and it was really just pulling teeth to even get it done. And so that, that really hurt Eddie Van Halen's creativity for the rest of his career. So yeah, bad idea. Big mistake. Yeah, big mistake. <laughs> Number 27. I think a lot of people don't know about this. Elvis Presley turns down the role in A Star Is Born in 1976. Yeah, he made a lot of mistakes in his life, <laughs> and, and having the colonel stick around in the the later days of his career was a big one. They made a million movies in the 60s, and most of them were terrible, because he, because he was paid the same for a bad movie than a good movie. You can make a bad movie in a few weeks. But this was a chance, finally, to be in a really great movie that could really show his range, because Elvis could act. He wasn't a bad actor, but he turned it down, and... That was that. And Chris Christopherson took the role. It's hard to it's hard to picture. What wasn't Elvis was Elvis in okay shape in nineteen seventy six? Would he have looked okay on screen? The role was kind of a washed up rock star. He got really big in seventy seven. He got really unhealthy he in seventy seven. He got yeah. really unhealthy at the end. In seventy six he was in decent shape to some degree. He could have worked out, he could have made this movie. He could have gotten off the drugs and had an acclaimed role and changed his life. He was only like 40 years old or something. He wasn't even that old. But it was one of the was one of his many big mistakes was to turn down a good movie. I have, a, I have some trouble picturing it. I just it's, it feels like such an alternative universe that I can't picture it. But yeah. sure, I can't either, really. <laughs> Number 26, Mountain Don't Feel Like Being in the Woodstock Movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's been forgotten now how big the Woodstock movie was in breaking bands. That Santana was pretty obscure before that. That this movie was seen by so many people that every moment of it is iconic. And you could really tour off that forever. And Mountain, who were a great band, they didn't sign off on it. Credence also didn't sign off on it. Yeah, or Dior, like Janis Joplin, or The Dead... But they were all pretty established, or Mountain was not very established at that point. And it could have been their moment, like their Joe Cocker moment, their Richie Havens moment. Yes, yeah, so you look at a picture of Mountain, I don't know if they would have been the most no, scintillating but screen can, presence. But Canned Heat were not too handsome either, and they had a big moment because of the Woodstock movie. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, Idiosyncratic choice, but <laughs> it's interesting. Thank they, you. They, 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 were, <laughs> they were a good band. They were a great band. Leslie West was a great guitar player speaking of eddie van halen influences he was one on props to mountain one of the most yes. aptly named bands of all time yes number 25 this is a thing that people forget about 25 is actually along the lines of the david guff and neil young thing it's very hard when you're in the music business to realize that the paradigm is shifting because it happens around you. You don't realize it happens. So in 1996, Warner Brothers 
They had one of the biggest bands in the world, R.E.M., on their label. And they're like, we got to keep these guys. We'll give them whatever they want. They just, these guys will never stop. And they gave them an $80 million contract extension. And that, but it was very close to the end of R.E.M. as a commercial force. Yeah. But if you look at their previous 15 years as a band, they got bigger and bigger and were the size of freaking U2 at this point. And Monster sold a ton of records as Out of Time, as Automatic for the People. So you figure that those get bigger and bigger. That is the new Rolling Stones. But it was the precise moment when the bottom fell out, when Bill Berry quit the band. And rock basically was like, stop being a commercial force on the radio. And it was just the worst possible second to give them that contract. The 90s were a weird time, man. It was, it was, things were a lot more open. It was a time, I'm looking at the picture of R.E.M. It's a time when these like kind of a, a bald dude singer, they all look middle-aged and they were one of the biggest, still one of the biggest commercial forces in music. Within a year or two, what you have on MTV instead is Hanson and the Spice Girls. Eventually, yeah. someone looked at the, looked at R.E.M. and were like, look, what, this station might look better if we had the Spice Girls on instead of these guys. <laughs> it yeah, might work and, better. And that was it. Perhaps our audience uh, of 12-year-olds are sick of looking at this bald guy. They might want to look at the Spice Girls <laughs> and Hanson instead. And the drummer left, yeah, so, so they used the drum machine on their next record. And I like Up personally, but it wasn't exactly full of songs that were like Man on the Moon or anything. It was just not their strongest effort commercially. <laughs> Number 24 is very funny. Dee Dee Ramone quits the Ramones and makes a rap album. Poor Dee Dee. He was a key part of the Ramones. He wrote a lot of their songs. He was the spirit of the group. He was a good bass player. He was a good lyricist. He was integral to that band. But he was the worst rapper to ever live. <laughs> and if you listen to Funky Man or whatever by Dee Dee King, it's just humiliating. And he quit the Ramones to do it. A long talk ring and it's time to get up. It's really weird because on some level, you always want to look for how are they right. He wasn't wrong that in 1987 or so, that the most exciting thing in music was rap. Right. And that rap was more exciting than punk rock in 1987. The problem was, it, and this is a very hard lesson, it's like, he was right, but it's not for you, Didi. Yeah, <laughs> like, it was not for Didi. It's not for Didi. It doesn't work for you. It's <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the hardest thing of all, is you're right and recognize it, but you doesn't do any good because you... You can't do. It. He even, you know, he was he became such a hip hop fan. He was showing up to Ramon shows dressed like a, uh, you know, like a rapper, like Run DMC. Yeah. And it's just yes, this is happening. You are absolutely right to recognize it. Th that's the worst part, actually, is there really was yeah. a link to be found between punk rock, a yeah. very profitable and world shaking yeah. link to be found around that exact time between yeah. between punk rock and hip hop. But it was the Beastie Boys. It was these yeah, young was kids, not, not you, Dee Dee Ramone. You're not going to be able to do it. That's the worst thing. He was totally right. But he also yeah. just couldn't rap. He couldn't rap. Sounds of it were horrible. He was also a real heroin addict, too. That didn't help anything either. Yes. And then, again, I'm talking about recurring themes, number 23, this idea of listening to criticism too much. Number 23 is MC Hammer, sorry, number 23 is MC Hammer goes gangsta, Hammer Time comes to a screeching halt. So yes, MC Hammer was huge with You Can't Touch This and Too Legit to Quit. And yes, you say that the chronic and stuff was making his stuff seem dated. It also was like people were making fun of him for being such a friendly, approachable rapper in the age of gangster rap. But his mistake was listening to that criticism and being like, no, I can be hard. Like, 
You can't be hard yeah. after you do can't touch this. Well, and be a gangsta in a really tight speedo in the video <laughs> where he's thrusting and <laughs> appears to be aroused at one point. I was not aware of this, Andy. This is a detail I yeah, did not know. It was banned from MTV because it was so graphic. <laughs> And it's one thing to be a gangster, to be a sexy gangster in a tight speedo is just, it's very incongruous and was a just disaster. Yeah, it was a lot of bad decisions by MC Hammer. Number 22. Now, someone on Twitter was very mad about this because sure. <laughs> Motley Crue fire Vince Neil and make an industrial album. Now, someone on Twitter s- claims that many people love this album that they made without Vince Neil. Sure, it's a that <laughs> people swear by it. It has a big cult following, but look at the sales of Doctor Feelgood and look at the sales of this record, and the mere fact that there was a scenario where the crew survived in the '90s that Bon Jovi and Def Leppard they found a way to carry on and still play big concerts and still have a following in the '90s, and the crew were always more talented than their other hair metal groups. They could write good songs, but you can't fire your lead singer. <laughs> It's just not going to work. And in the grunge era, you can't wait five years between records. They waited from 89 to 94, the same as the Stone Roses. It wasn't an industrial album. There's parts of it where, yeah, I could have phrased it a little better. There's parts of it are industrial. It's, there's parts of it that are like Nine Nails inspired. It's alternative. It's trying to be everything current in that moment. Yeah, again, you can just feel the themes. You can feel, again, you know, these things are happening, yeah. but maybe they're not for you. You just have to understand. It's tough because there was Kiss tried to make a grunge album at the time. I guess it never yeah. came out. That was the deal. It came out later. It came out later. Yeah. So it was very tempting. It's like you have these guitars here. You have guitars too. You can do something vaguely like that. What? That even Rush and Cheap Trick tried to Well, kind You of know what's weird is for Rush, it was actually, I would argue, quite beneficial. Rush were one of the few right. bands who... who needed that kick because they didn't re- it wasn't that grungy but what it did is it fully finally kicked them out of the 80s and reminded them that they were they could be a guitar band again so i right. would argue that the rush stuff actually aged pretty well it's just vaguely with some of the energy of grunge so i would i would defend the rush move there no i would too yeah but for the crew... Sorry, sorry to can... the people listening who have no idea what I'm talking about. But yes, there, yeah. there was a band called Rush. <laughs> and there, but there were... This is all about just the same themes. Like, what do you do when the world is changing around you? How do you deal with it? So yeah, number 21, very bad decision. Scooter Braun pisses off Taylor Swift. Uh, and it's hard to... It's so interesting. I'd love to put Scooter Braun under a lie detector... And just get a sense, what did he think would happen when he bought Taylor Swift's master recordings without her being down with that, with that purchase? I don't know. I think he thought, shit, I've got a gold mine here. I'll make a fortune. He didn't. And people in the past, they re-recorded their old stuff. And it's always a joke. It sounds horrible. And nobody wants the new versions. It's never once worked. Like when Blondie recuts Heart of Glass in like 2018, it's not like anybody gives a fuck or does anything to try and sell it to be movies or something. He didn't realize that she could do what she did. 
yeah, I've talked about this before. There's definitely been people have recorded parts of their catalog, and then people actually, people like Prince threatened to re-record his entire Warner catalog, but never got around to it. Yeah. Taylor, because she's a type A personality and very determined and very talented, she's doing it. She's doing the whole thing relentlessly. And in one of the, I would say, you know, one of the most brilliant sort of marketing moves in the history of the record business, not only is doing it and just quietly putting it up, but found ways to make it an event every single time. Yeah, and to call them Taylor's version implies that these are the real versions, that the other ones are not the real versions. And she's devalued them tremendously. If you search Apple Music and Spotify for her old albums, it's the Taylor's versions that come up. So bad decision by Scooter Braun. Yeah. Terrible decision. Oh, yeah. Very bad. Number 20, Suge Knight addresses the 1995 Source Awards. Listen, iconic moment. He takes a stage. He takes a direct shot at Sean Combs at Puff Daddy at the time. Any artist out there that wants to be an artist or stay a star and don't want to worry about an executive producer trying to be all in the videos, all in the records, <laughs> dancing, come to death row. And it truly inflamed the East Coast, West Coast rap war and arguably may have led to the deaths of Tupac and Biggie. And listen, uh, Suge Knight, you could also do an entire list of Suge Knight's worst decisions. Yes, but this one would have had the worst consequences in a lot That's of ways. That's true. I especially like the one where I was at a VMA's party a few years ago and a gunshot went off and I later learned that it was Suge Knight accidentally shooting himself in the thigh. So... That's probably my favorite Suge Knight mistake. The part where he also, yeah. you know, ran over a bunch of people with his car wasn't too great. Not a lifetime yeah. of great decisions by Suge Knight. Number 19, the Beach Boys skip the Monterey Pop Fest. It's hard to impress upon people in retrospect, but the Beach Boys were on the precipice of could they get a new cool image or would they be stuck as the guys in their dorky suits with surfboards? And they hadn't quite made the transition that the Beatles had as far as their image, their music had. But they weren't considered cool, and they could have played Monterey Pop and debuted themselves as the artists that they were at that point, and instead they didn't. And that was it for them as being seen as part of the rock mainstream at the time. Yeah, and the previous year was the biggest hit of their entire career with Good Vibrations. It was a big step forward. It was hugely influential. It was a great song. They could have, if Brian had stayed sane and had finished Smile at the time and they played Monterey Pop and they debuted the Smile songs, they could have had a whole other era. But that was the moment when, because they were supposed to play Monterey Pop and they, they would have been a, alongside of Hendrix and The Who and all that stuff. Instead, they didn't show up and it was the start of a very difficult downward slide. But yeah, number 17, the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton make a film version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And not, and not only that, but they redid the album. The most hubristic quote of all time, besides I am Pink Floyd or That's My Pig, is... Kids today don't know the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper Robin Gibbs said at the time, when ours comes out, it will be an effect as if theirs never existed. <laughs> and what's easy to forget is how big the Bee Gees and Peter Frampton were in that moment in 78. Right. The Saturday Night Fever was one of the biggest records to ever come out. 
ever. It was number one month after month after month. It had so many hits on it. And Family Comes Alive was on the biggest records of the 70s. So they were just juggernauts. And then that movie came out. And then it was really, the t- turn was so fast. The movie was such a disaster. And number 16 is a great example of you're not wrong, you're just an asshole. Metallica takes on own fans over Napster. And look, again, it's hard to recreate the time. The music business was had been doing so well. People were buying CDs by the millions. You put out an album, you're a big act. They'd go to Tower, if you were Metallica, if you were in sync, you put out an album, people would line up at Tower Records and they would just buy the CDs for $19 and they liked it. That's actually how it worked. <laughs> people would, would go to a store and buy a whole CD for $19, sometimes just to hear one song. And then yeah. Napster came along and it introduced, you know, you, you could go online and download a song for free versus driving to a store <laughs> versus driving to a store and playing $19 for an entire CD. Strangely, people seem to prefer that. They seem to prefer getting the one song for free. It was indeed an existential threat to the music industry. They were not wrong. And people got confused. The whole music industry, the combined record labels, were all suing Napster. But Metallica brought their own lawsuit against Napster and delivered the names of 30,000 Metallica fans, people who downloaded Metallica songs to Napster, and asked them to be banned by the service. Right, which has led to the urban legend that Metallica sued their own fans. That didn't happen. <laughs> right. They did sue Napster. They had their own separate lawsuit against Napster. And it became... I always felt Metallica took unfair heat for this because they weren't wrong. Their stuff was being stolen. No, yeah, they were really upset. But I think what the fans got upset is when they gave a list of names to Napster, like, block these people. And I think that many of the fans were just... It felt as if this cool metal band was being the man, and they really didn't like that. Yeah, number 15, Ashley Simpson plays SNL when she probably should have called in sick. And this is what happened to her is what happened to Millie Vanilli, although she's not Millie Vanilli. It's not like Millie Vanilli did not actually sing on their music. But basically, there was a problem with the pre-recorded vocal track. She was, for whatever reason, lip syncing on Saturday Night Live and the wrong vocal track the track for her great song, Pieces of Me, began playing. On a Monday, I am waiting. Tuesday, I am fading. And by Wednesday, I can't sleep. When she was supposed to be singing another song, Autobiography. And it's a catastrophe. And she did a little dance, a little jig, like the, like the people did around the Stonehenge in Spinal Tap. A little dance. And then the show had to just cut off the musical performance. It cut to commercial. And it went super viral, and that was it for her singing career. It's a disaster. Yeah, it was very unfair, because she's pretty convincing that she had acid reflux and could not sing that night. Her right. voice was just but shot. But as you said, she, she, she should have canceled. Number 14, yeah, this is a moment that this is when, this is why there's publicists, unfortunately. When you think about what famous people don't want to say in an interview is this. John Lennon was doing an interview in 1966. And he said, you know, he's just talking, he's just thinking out loud, as John Lennon would do. <laughs> Christianity will go, will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right and I'll be proved right. We're more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And it's just, it's just John being John. And in England, you can say stuff like that. <laughs> but in the American South in 1966, 
you cannot say that. You're not, you cannot suggest that the Beatles are bigger than Jesus. And uh, the records were burned in Georgia. The radio stations banned their music. They even had some empty seats. And Yeah, if you go back and read press from that tour... It's basically like there's all these unsold seats at these stadiums. There's protests outside. There's records being burned. Is this the end of the Beatles? And they never toured again. It was a really rough time. <laughs> and there were police escorts because of like death threats against them. And it was just misery. Yeah, I think John never quite understood why what the problem was. <laughs> <laughs> just can't say that in America. Uh, I think it's this number 13. Garth Brooks becomes Chris Gaines. And people love talking about this. He, very ambitious project by Garth Brooks. Heaven knows I'm head over heels and it shows. I think if we had to um, look at what the, the core of this was, is that Garth Brooks believed that he was bigger than country music and he, he could be just as big starting over as a, a fictional rock star. If he made rock music, he could, make, he could be just as big. And he could take on this persona. Yeah, they even made a fake behind the music. He made a whole album and did an SNL where he put on this wig and a soul patch. And I think the thing that really, truly makes for the mockery is he like photoshopped it to make himself look trimmer in the pictures. It's just the vanity of that just like really got to people. And he announced a movie. There'd be a whole Chris Gaines, like a big Hollywood movie that was supposed to happen. It was called The Lamb or something. It just didn't happen. And then the record label, they got nervous. So the record was stamped like Garth Brooks as Chris Gaines. It was just confusing and he'd nearly go all the way with it. It was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. He never regained the momentum he had at that point. That was a yeah. bad thing. Yeah. Number 12. Yeah. The guys in Creedence Clearwater Revival who aren't John Fogarty want to start to write songs in 1972. And yeah, Credence were this band that were primarily driven by John Fogarty. He wrote all the songs. He was, they essentially were his backing band. And people, it's not enough to be rich and famous. You, you want to start to believe that you're a creative force. And that was it. Yeah, and the publishing then was so much off of the hit singles. Right. So he Good was point, yeah. raking in money. And then they weren't, because the touring was probably not paying for him very much of anything. So they were resentful of that, and his own brother was obviously jealous of him. He quit. But this record, if you listen to it, it's so astoundingly bad, these songs. Because Doug and Stu, they're a great rhythm section. They can't write a song. Back when, and that actually does... a. One of the other sort of like primal mistakes is if you're luckily there, luckily for musicians, there aren't really bands anymore. There's barely any bands. But back when there were bands, <laughs> the smart thing to do if you were the front person who wrote all the songs, the smart thing to do was to cut in your band members with some of the publishing, even though they, even if they didn't technically write the songs, because then you keep everyone happy and you keep the band going. But yeah. no, Fogarty would never do that. And no. that's and he didn't realize that could have been the way to solve it. Rather than let them write the awful songs, just give them some money. That probably would have done it. But my God, that, that record sucks. Number 11. <laughs> Steve Van Zandt quits the Eastry Band just before Born USA tour. Yeah, so Steve Van Zandt is Bruce Springsteen's longtime friend, of course. He was in the Eastry Band starting in 75. He was a key creative force. Uh, behind the albums as a producer and just a general sort of sounding board 
And the thing about the weird thing about Springsteen's career is he hadn't made big money until 84, 85, when Born USA was this huge hit and they played their first stadium shows. And then all of a sudden, everybody got pretty rich. Steve, for a lot of complicated reasons, you have to read his book. He was pursuing his solo career. He felt underappreciated for his input within within Bruce's world. He was a, a co-producer of Born USA. And his conception of his importance to Bruce's creative process wasn't the same as Bruce's conception of Steve's importance to the creative process. And so it led to an inevitable conflict. Is a talented, strong-willed guy. How long could he stay in this sort of, you know, conciliary role and pridefully quit? <laughs> and not a good financial move. Yeah, which he says still affects him. He always claims to be broke. And I want to say when he told me this, I'm going to be like... Two tours in the 80s would make you wealthy now? He takes his money and he invests it in his other projects. So that's the issue. Yeah. Wasn't a good decision. He did a lot of great activism in South Africa and elsewhere. This is Nils Lafgren's favorite entry on this list. Yeah. Uh, created some room for Nils Lafgren. Also, it also opened both Nils Lafgren and Patti Scalfa came into the band because of this. It changed a lot of Ch- things. changed yes. everything. So, you know. But Steve's doing okay. He'll be okay. He's- I do think the, the good lesson, I think the lesson for everyone, though, in Steve's book, I think it's a good lesson, is never leave your power base if you don't have to. You can do other things, but if you have a, if you have a place of stability and that they, they gives you a little bit of clout in the world, try to do your next thing without leaving. Yeah, That's good it's for Shelly Long leaving Cheers or something. Yeah. <laughs> you stay on your show. Whereas Jennifer Aniston stayed on Friends. Right. You know, that, that was the difference. She made her movies in the summer because she knew her power base was friends. Number 10, Billy Squire obliterates his career with one cheesy music video. Yeah, so Rock Me Tonight by Billy Squire. He wears a pink tank top and there's a lot of videos of rock stars badly dancing, but this was... Uh, this was not good for uh, for Billy Squire. Because he was a hard rock guitar guy, and to his fans, just to watch him dance in a pink tank top, it seems so against his image that even he says it was the biggest mistake of his whole life. It changed his whole career. Yeah, I will say this is an idiosyncratic Andy choice to put this as number 10. Because his <laughs> career is before this, and it's after this. And even he says it was a huge mistake, that the video it just embarrassed him, it turned his fans against him, and he never recovered from it. Yeah, I, I just, I, I guess I question the significance of Billy Squire's career being, but yeah. No, you, you look at his hits before that. He had genuine big hits. He's one of the most sampled guys in That's all of hip hop. Yes, well, for one song, yes. But he... It was a few songs. Wasn't it just the one, like the Strut or whatever that song's called? It was the Stroke? The no, stroke. multiple songs of his had been sampled everywhere. All right, he, okay. Fair enough. It's, it's, it's true. You know, it's true. Just checking you here. I, his, I've yeah. said this before, but I really like his Christmas song. Christmas is the time to say I love you. Banger. Great song. A lot of people think it's a Queen song. It sounds like a Queen song, but it's Billy Squire. He is Bono's neighbor in their apartment buildings, and they've had huge fights, like, via the co-op board. See, that's the crazy thing about the music business back then. Billy Squire, who no one's even fucking heard of in 2022, somehow has enough money still that he can be in the same building as Bono. I think he bought the apartment, like, 40 years ago, and he still has it. But I think his chimney was putting smoke in Bono's apartment. It was a whole fight they had. It was hysterical. Number nine, U2 gave their new album away for free in iTunes. 
Yeah, the U2 did a thing where their album, Songs of Innocence, just appeared in everyone's phone in a pretty aggressive way. And I think part of it was it was just more aggressive than they imagined. I don't know what they imagined, but it was also based on this kind of clueless idea from Tim Cook of Apple that everyone loves U2. <laughs> everyone in the world well, loves U2. And the band claims, and I believe them, they thought that you could opt into it. They didn't realize it would be automatic. They thought there could be some switch of, yes, I'll take this free thing, and then not just here you go. That's right. They didn't realize, they didn't realize that it would aggressively download itself onto your phone, there's still people who say that the the only music they had on their phone was... No, that my mom's friends, they occasionally, when they plug their phone in in their car to try and get GPS, like the miracle of Joy Ramone starts playing. (laughs) I was shaking from a storm in me Haunted by the specters that we had to see Yeah, I wanted... They're like, what the fuck is... Why does this song always play? Because it's not as MP3s anymore. So it's the only song in, like, your iTunes drive on your phone for most people still it's all these years later yeah definitely a mistake and it wasn't their best album and it was just i think their intentions were good but it didn't do a lot of and i thought some of the i thought some of the outrage at the time was really exaggerated and a little much because it didn't really hurt anyone but it did damage their image definitely you don't want to be the thing that's foisted on everyone's phone yeah, no. Number eight, uh, Ja Rule invests in the Fire Festival. Yes, Ja Rule's part in the Fire Festival was very funny. He decided to become the public face of this catastrophic festival with with rich kids living on cheese sandwiches while being trapped on an island or whatever. Not good. Yeah, it was pretty bad. Then and his tweets were so funny on the day of. He was like, this is not my fault. I truly apologize. This is not my fault, which is you can't apologize for something <laughs> and say it's not your fault. Yeah. This is why something like Fire Festival is on this list and not Astroworld again, because keeping it light. Yes, of course. Number seven, Blood, Sweat, and Tears do a tour sponsored by the U.S. government at the height of the Vietnam War. I didn't know about this at all. Yeah, they had Blood, Sweat, and Tears have been somewhat forgotten, but they had a lot of really big hits. They sold a lot of records. And at the peak of their career, at the peak of the Vietnam War, they agreed to this government-sponsored tour of Europe. They looked like little pawns, and it was just... And even the band says now it destroyed them. 1970 is a very, very funny time to do that. Yeah, it was insane. Number six embodies, it's one of those things that is just the start of a lot of mistakes. Kanye West kicks off his, quote, total asshole era by interrupting Taylor Swift at the VMAs, 2009. And yeah, it just, it started, it could have gone two ways. It could have been just a dumb thing he did that wasn't characteristic of the way he is. And Beyonce indeed did have one of the best videos of all time. It was a rude and inexcusable thing to do, but it could have been, Taylor had forgiven him. It could have been okay. But instead it it turned out to be that that was just (laughs) the barest shadow of the horrendous shit he would, the increasingly horrendous shit he would do over the years. Uh, Yeah, it was the beginning of everything. She spiraled. It was a slow spiral at first, then it picked up speed to the, his current state of insanity. Yeah, number five, Woodstock organizers, number five, Woodstock organizers celebrate events 30th anniversary with a horrific riot. That's not exactly exactly what happened, but yes, Woodstock 99, very bad. I'm deeply on record about Woodstock 99 being very bad. I think it's even funnier, as you mentioned, the 50th is even funnier. They tried to do the 50th in 2019, and it just slowly, people were just dropping off. And then my favorite fact about 
Woodstock 99 and Woodstock 50 and all this is the late Michael Lang, all the laws that he was struggling with in Woodstock 94, Woodstock 99, the New York laws about mass gatherings that he was struggling to deal with were all put in place after the original Woodstock, which he also promoted. <laughs> he was It was the ultimate sort of like weird karmic thing. He created this situation for himself. It's also weird, yeah. like Michael Lang, you know, he's, he, may he rest in peace, was absolutely terrible at the only thing he ever did, which was put on big concerts. He was well, known for putting on big concerts. He, this man was horrible at putting on big concerts. I mean, he helped run Altamont, let's just say he, that. Yes, well, we'll get to that. He was... Oh, sorry, yeah, it's, sorry. It's hard to say anyone else who's so famous for doing a thing that they're so manifestly horrible at. Like, just... Yeah. What he was famous for was putting on concerts that at least that could have been slaughterhouses that's how bad they could have gotten and so at least no one not thousands of people didn't end up dying so i guess that's the in his so then they let him do another one but there's something so funny about it. i mean the original woodstock was a logistical nightmare why would you want to create that people were abandoning their cars on the side of the highway there wasn't enough water yeah. it's insane why would you ever do yeah. another woodstock and no one even paid for tickets they all yeah. just stormed the what, gates what it was <laughs> famous for is that it was such a catastrophe and yet due to the right drugs or the peace and love what either i would say it was the right drugs luck. or the peace and yeah. love feeling or just luck that it didn't turn into a horrendous riot that people were peaceful but that doesn't mean you ever try to do it again it's so funny it's just pure insanity yeah. anyway yeah number four yes eric clapton goes all in on vaccine conspiracy nonsense so we were discussing before and of course an even worse thing and as we've discussed on this pod is is uh you know, the, the fact that in 1976, Eric Clapton went on a racist, xenophobic rant on stage. But the thing was, he lucked out because it wasn't captured on audio, wasn't captured on video. And for years, people didn't even really know that this happened. Or if they heard that it happened, couldn't really grasp the pure awfulness of it again because there was no audio or video. So he w Yeah, it was just dismissed as sort of this drug-induced moment of insanity that was against his general Yes, a, a, on a moral level, it was a worse infraction, arguably, but he just got away with it. But then for his reputation, he, yes, he went all in on vaccine conspiracy nonsense. He started writing songs about these very literal songs about anti-vax songs. He, this has got to stop. He sings on This Has Got to Stop. It's gone far enough. You want to claim my soul. You'll have to come and break down this door. Great stuff. It's like, <laughs> he, if you want to claim my soul, you have to come and break down this door. Now that they're going to claim his soul, which for vaccine, he took the vaccine. He knows it didn't take yeah. his soul. So he just, he went all in. Then Van Morrison joined in, joined him on it. And they just, it, the most embarrassing boomer rock moments of all time. And just, he decided to throw his reputation down the drain for nothing just really ridiculous and sad yeah. and and it's you just generally you start to as you said he looks so smart and sophisticated in his suit and then you just wonder if he's just a dummy hard not to sure seems that way yeah. yeah number three yes decca records passes on signing the beatles bad this makes britney turning down umbrella look like nothing <laughs> yes and the poor dick Rowe was quoted by beatles manager brian epstein as saying that guitar groups are on, are on their way out but Roe understandably says he never said that. But they, they did reject him. They signed something called Brian Poole and the Tremolos instead. <laughs> and yeah, bad decision. It was a bad move, but I think it helped the Beatles because they were destined to be with George Martin and a DECA. That wouldn't have happened. And they would have had, they would have been great, but it would have been different. 
Number two, Jerry Lee Lewis recently died. In 1958, he married his underage cousin. And he initially told the press she was 15. Turned out she was 13 and she was his cousin. It did not, did not go over well. And it's something that understandably tarred him past his death. Yeah, it was a very bad move. I thought about not including it because there's so many other sex scandals I could have done that were just as bad or worse. But this had such a direct, quick impact on his career. It, it almost ended there. His whole career came to a screeching halt. He's one of the biggest stars in the world. He eventually, he came back as a country act and as a nostalgia act. But this was the moment when it all ended. Yes, one of the most disgusting decisions in the history of music, for sure. Yes. And number one, you know, it's like, again, you tried to keep horrific stuff off for the most part, but had to include this. The Rolling Stones hire the Hells Angels as security guards for the rock festival. It is true that I believe that the, that they asked the Grateful Dead because they were coming to San Francisco they asked the Grateful Dead, hey, man, who, should, who would be good security in the dead? Or like, oh, definitely, definitely hire the Hells Angels. Those guys are cool. And it didn't work out. No, it did not work out. And the entire Altamont Festival, beyond even hiring them and the debt that it caused, was such a fiasco. Organized so last minute. It was move last minute. It makes Woodstock seem like Coachella or something in terms of being organized. And it really led to this. You can't assemble a, a group of people that large at the last second with no plans for anything. It's just a recipe for chaos. Our friend Michael Lang again. And yeah, and Meredith Hunter was killed by the Hells Angels, a fan named mm-hmm. Meredith Hunter. And it was, it was a catastrophe. And it also was, this, the whole thing was the Stones, again, listening too hard for criticism. They got shook. They got shaken by the criticism of, oh, you're charging too much for tickets. I think they were charging like $3. <laughs> yeah. It was like maybe $5. I don't remember, $5, $7, whatever. It was just a, yeah. a horrible, how dare they? And so to blunt the criticism at the height, 69, and the, to show that they're down with the whole hippie thing, they threw this free concert. And again, it's another the fatal flaw of listening too much to criticism. But that's one the first one of my first interviews with Mick Jagger. I was going through his it was for the Scorsese movie and I was going through various Rolling Stones film and TV projects. And I sort of accidentally brought up Gimme Shelter. And then I was thinking like like, only a few minutes later, did I realize I I just casually broached Altamont to Mick Jagger, which was probably wasn't uh, like the most judicious interview tactic. It's a sensitive subject (laughs) with Rolling Stone and Mick Jagger because we did we, I wasn't alive then, but they did a whole expose about it. It really blamed them for what happened, and Mick was furious about it. We've epically gone through this whole list. Are there a couple, what are the things that you most, if you got to 55, what were some of the things that, that you were, that were just on the crux of making this list? A lot of replacement singers that were <laughs> just disastrous. I'm fascinated by that. So many dumb prog rock things, just like ELP touring with the symphony and everything. Did King Arthur on Ice by Rick Wakeman, but we felt that we had two yes things, funny one. The thing is also, there's also terrible decisions that don't really have consequences. For example, when Gaga did that duet with R. Kelly. Oh, sure. Terrible decision, but it didn't rock her career. And that's what you're looking for is things that like destroyed career. Yeah, I was, yeah, which was my main criteria was what were the moments of mistake were really fucked with people. Yeah, and that's why Billy Squire is so high because it's single decisions that destroy entire careers is your ideal. All right, worst decisions, or as Howard Stern would have it, most embarrassing moments in the history of music. 
<laughs> and uh, Andy Green, thank you for going through all this with me. Of course, it was fun. And that is our show for today. Please go and subscribe to Rolling Stone Music Now wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe leave us five stars or a nice review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify because that's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. And we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did. And they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.